Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Crater Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On today's episode, I have writer, director, actor, producer, David Avalone. He is writing the upcoming series for Dynamite Entertainment, Betty Page Number 1. Who is Betty Page? Well, you may remember Betty Page from the Rocketeer comic books, Rocketeer created by Dave Stevens, and it has been published by IDW uh, in subsequent series by other writers and artists, miniseries for IDW, as an homage to Dave Stevens. And Betty Page was the likeness and inspiration for Cliff Secord's girlfriend in the comic books. Betty Page was a model in the early 50s, taking risque photos and sexy photos and was very popular in the early 1950s before leaving modeling. And you probably have seen her picture somewhere before. It's very iconic. She has the bangs, the brunette hair and bangs. Well, David's story is a fictitious adventure of Betty Page's, written true to her spirit and personality. So I'm really looking forward to see how that all plays out. And David is a font of film knowledge and is a great guest because we digress all over the place about other films and, of course, my questions about peace and relaxation. I hope you enjoy this episode. There'll be more coming up in the forthcoming weeks and months. I'm just getting started. So, depending on the time of day, grab a cup of coffee, grab yourself a glass of wine or a beer. If you're driving, don't. Keep your eyes on the road and your hands upon the wheel. Let's get started with my interview with David Avalone here now on Creator Talks. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here to talk about your upcoming book for Dynamite Entertainment, Betty Page, with art by Colton Worley, uh, one of my favorite artists there, because he worked on The Shadow Now. That's probably one of my favorite series that he did the art for. Yeah, you know, I I haven't read The Shadow Now, but when uh, Colton was suggested, like, you know, like everyone else, I Googled him and looked up... Um, what his most recent work was and it's it's beautiful stuff and it's a he definitely has an unmistakable one-of-a-kind style i don't i don't know that there's a lot of people out there doing anything that looks anything like what colton is doing no great get for that book and you know i don't think anyone has used betty page in comics since dave stevens with the exception being the idw miniseries that have been out over the past few years this is a first for both you i believe and dynamite entertainment to do a betty page series that that is definitely true. They, uh, I'm not privy to the, and I should say, thankfully, I'm not privy to the licensing talks or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it came completely out of the blue for me. I hadn't heard any rumblings or indication that anything was going on, and then uh, Joe Ryban, the senior editor at uh, Dynamite, dropped me an email and said, "Hey, how would uh, you want to pitch me a?" Betty Page series, <laughs> and I said, "What are the um, what are the parameters?" And one of the things I love about Joe is uh, he said, "Betty Page comic book; those are your parameters." I have no, I have no, I have no uh, guidelines or or guidance for you. Just what Betty Page comic would you write? Um, and I think he had he had reasons uh, aside from whatever he made think of my talents as a comic book writer he had reasons i think to uh come to me with this uh on top of my interest in period stuff and all of that um i'm married to a burlesque dancer penny star jr 
being her professional name and a burlesque costume designer. And uh, I think Joe's reasoning might have been along the lines of, well, this guy's married to Betty Page, so maybe he should do the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, and my wife even wear, you know, she wears the bangs. It's, uh, you know, she's, she's, her hair at the very least is doing an homage to Betty for a very long time. So, um, so I know not that the, the world of burlesque in 2017 is anything like the world of burlesque in 1951. And Betty wasn't particularly a burlesque girl, but that whole pinup vibe uh, is something I've spent a lot of time around in my personal and professional career. Uh, so it was not unknown to me. Um, and my dad was a, a mystery writer uh, whose first book, was a hard-boiled detective novel from 1953. So again, that that era is kind of etched into my consciousness in an unusual way for someone who wasn't alive then. Now, are you bouncing some ideas off your wife? Uh, she's actually designing costumes. Her first costumes for the, the book show up in issue two. Oh. Um, it just seemed like a natural thing. And, you know... Colton's style is very labor intensive. Um, and uh, I'm already a very big fan. I bury my artists in photo reference. Um, not so much out of a control freak thing, but out of a, well, uh, the guy can spend his time drawing or he can spend his time looking up what an MP28 machine gun from 1938 would look like how about I just send him a picture? So I tend to, especially 90% of what I've done has been period stuff um, set in the thirties. You know, I, I, every prop, every significant vehicle setting, uh, honestly, even a lot of times characters, uh, I've done a lot of work with an artist named Dave Acosta and we love casting our, our, our books with 1930s movie stars. So that it even more has that sort of subconsciously, it feels like 1938 when you're reading them. Um, so yeah, just everything. So in this case, rather than uh, send Colton fashion magazine ads from 1951, I thought there was definitely some stuff that specifically my wife could design. And in the second issue of the series, uh, it's not really much of a giveaway since it'll be in the solicits before long before the book comes out. Um, Betty gets a job on a low budget sci-fi invasion, alien invasion movie playing the queen of the space commies. And uh, <laughs> so my wife designed all of the costumes for the queen of the space commies movie. Uh, that's great. Not just Betty's costumes, but also the alien invader costumes are designed by her. And she very smartly, she approached it. She also works as a set costumer on movies and as a costume designer on low budget movies. And she very much approached it from the angle of what would I do in 1951 if I had to make these costumes? And for example, the the alien invader bad guys their costumes are thrown together from a variety of military and industrial surplus and football helmets and gas masks because that's what you could afford in 1951. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what you'd be able to run out and buy 10 of uh, for a low cost. So uh, 
so yeah, so she's contributing to the book in that way, which I'm delighted by. You've got like three of the best things about the fifties in this book. I mean, you got Betty Page, you got aliens, you got commies coming. That's incredible. That that's so I'm so excited about that because I've I've started to read some of the fifties comics myself, taking a, a fresh look at them because I never really had much interest in them. But mm-hmm. I started reading like the Submariner 1950s series because he's fighting the commies. And, yep. um, and much to my wife's chagrin, I picked up a few. Um, so <laughs> they're for the kids when I'm, I'm long gone, they can inherit these. But that's great. And I, I love that you're working on the period stuff from the 30s. And I don't know what it is, but there's something I'm really attracted to about that, the pulp characters and the films. I've gone back and watched some of the films pre-code. Mm-hmm. Look at stuff like oh, yeah. the horror films, uh, Fu Manchu. It's just like it's something about the design of the machinery pre World War II that is just—it's just so artistic. They're art in and of itself. The way it's just set up and shot, I love that stuff. Yeah, it's beautiful stuff. And the, the, the American film in the 1930s is really kind of amazing to look at. And also, there's a. It's funny, my artist uh, on that book, Dave Acosta, on the book I'm on now, uh, or just wrapping up. Doc Savage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Doc Savage Ring of Fire book, and he did the Twilight Zone, the Shadow book with me. Wrote a very nice thing praising my ability to capture the 1930s, but one of the things he pointed out was just that feeling of hopefulness and dread Mm. of the future is bright and shiny and we're going to be able to accomplish all of these amazing things and world war ii is coming <laughs> so it's you know that right. that weird weird mix of everything is getting so much better and the world is going straight to hell at the same time and it's that's a fascinating thing and 51 i'm it's a different balance it's you know uh everyone talks about the 50s as outward complacency and happiness with a horrible boiling, you know, underneath. And yes, of course, I'm obviously working on that as well. One of the, one of the inspirations for the main story of Betty Page in the comic is based on research I did for a different comic that never went anywhere years and years ago. Um, I was going to use a character named a man, a real life man named Jack Parsons as a character and I don't know if you've heard of Jack Parsons. If you haven't, look him up. He built, It's a amazing life. He's one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And he was also involved with Aleister Crowley's uh, Thelema cult. And he lived in a communal house in Pasadena while he was doing these two things at the same time. Founding America's rocket science and practicing free love and you know all of this and uh it's worth noting that one of his roommates who was part of his cult and a sci-fi writer and a buddy of his ran away with his wife and started Scientology (laughs) (laughs) and it's just it to me it's just an amazing confluence of everything fascinating about America literally located in one house in Pasadena (laughs) you know Mm. that this guy who's and because when you look up Jack Parsons, your first thought will be, oh, this is who Tony Stark is based on, not Howard Hughes, because he's this handsome dude with a pencil-thin mustache, and he died because he blew himself up experimenting on rockets in his garage. <laughs> like, literally, he blew a hole in Pasadena uh, 
And the thought initially, it might be suspicious circumstances, but his entire life had been spent blowing things up in Pasadena. So everyone, well, maybe this time, maybe this time it just didn't work out with her. And uh, so that was part of why the story ended up in 1951 in Southern California. Uh, I also thought it would be fun to take Betty away from the life of hers that we know about and to catch her right before she starts to become famous on her first round of fame. Um, You know, she was forgotten, very much largely forgotten by the time Dave Stevens started obsessively drawing her in the Rocketeer. But uh, she wasn't unknown in the mid-50s. She was on magazine covers. She was named, though. In doing my research, I noticed that roughly 80% of her no- the time they spent her they spelled her name with a Y, which cracked me up. She used Betty Page with a Y in, in about 80% of her photo <laughs> captions, which must have driven her up a wall. Um, but yeah, look, researching her life, I discovered she dated this guy named Richard Erbib, uh, crazy spelling of the last name, who was a married guy, and he was another early 50s Tony Stark Tony Stark type guy he designed cars he was a he designed electronic watches and lighters i think and he eventually went back to his wife but something about him reminded me of Parsons so i decided to sort of conflate all of those things together and fictionalize it because we don't want to be sued by anybody um there is no L Ron Hubbard in uh, in uh, Betty Page. There is a, a cult leader named Elroy Benway, <laughs> who uh, who has something called Sky Science. But um, there, for for all sorts of reasons, I decided to just play in a completely fictional 1951. And you know, she will not run into anyone famous who is not an abstraction of a real person. <laughs> when you researched Betty Page's life, did, was there anything that you found out that surprised you that you did not know or have heard about? I pr- I have to say I I had always been interested in her and I'd always liked her, so I had not a lot of shocking surprises. Um, there's a great documentary called uh, Betty Page Reveals All, I think, or Tells All. And that was invaluable because uh, she narrates it. And, you know, there was some specific stuff. I had seen it before and I had forgotten exactly how rough some parts of her life were. Um, But for me, not a lot of it was surprising. I think people should watch that documentary and uh, I think they'd be surprised at... uh, There's a standard narrative... Uh, with American public figures in general, that's the wild youth, uh, crash and burn, and then return to a uh, useful member of society by finding Jesus. I literally, I used to work for Lorimar Telepictures a million years ago, and we would get Us Magazine for free. And in the back pages, there was a Where Are They Now? And every story of every person that they profiled was... I was on this number one sitcom, and then I did a lot of cocaine for about ten years, and then I found Jesus, and I got better. And it was just, <laughs> like it was, it was like literally a formula, and they just changed the name of the actor in the TV show that they were on. Um, 
And uh, I certainly am not a believer, and I don't believe that uh, <laughs> believe that the only the only way to, out of cocaine is uh, necessarily Jesus Christ. But the the thing that really is striking about Betty compared to everyone else who lived that trajectory, because she did become a, a serious. I wouldn't. I don't know if she was born again, but she did become a serious religious person is she never spoke about her modeling career, nudity, BDSM photos with any shame whatsoever. That's one of the things I love about her is yes, Jesus saved her and she changed her life and she lived a more humble life and blah, 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 blah. But to the day she died, you ask her about the modeling. She said, those were great times and I had a wonderful time and I didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that's the thing to me that makes her, that's why I have no problem writing her as a hero is that, um, she wasn't, she never saw that part of her life through a lens of shame. And there was something, she is literally like the original plucky, unstoppable, unsinkable heroine in her real life. Bad things happened to her. She was buffeted around. You know, she had a, I I may allude to this because it was the first time she was in Los Angeles in her life. So my fictional return to Los Angeles is is a callback to that a little bit. But, you know, one of her first things, she she had a screen test. Studio executive basically said, I'll give you parts in movies if you sleep with me. And she said, no, thanks. Went back to San Francisco. You know, Betty Page... A different person willing to make different compromises could have been a B-movie star in the 50s had she decided to play that particular game. Uh, But she didn't. And that kind of thing happened to her a lot for fairly obvious reasons. Um, But it never – it didn't wear her down. You know, you listen to her talking on this documentary where she's in her 70s or 80s and she's just – She's not real cynical. Like she has a, I think it's a heroic thing to have a clear eyed view of everything wrong with humanity and have experienced virtually all of it and still think the world is a beautiful place and people are good. And that's, that's her intrinsic nature. And that's interesting for me, uh, who is a cynic to write. And actually listening, I will say the the one thing about the documentary, uh, I've written most of my comic book work, which is not a lot. I started only about three or four years ago in a cinematic style, you know, no captions, no narration, just pictures and the words you would hear if you were watching it as a movie. Um, And something about Betty narrating the documentary, I went, you know, let's do first person narration. Let's let Betty be the voice of the book. And, you know, I had a minute of you're a 50 year old, 51 year old white guy from New Jersey who lives in Hollywood, California. Do you really want to attempt to write a very, very good girl from, you know, a Southern belle from Tennessee for for 80 pages of comic books? Can you pull off that voice? But I gave it a try, and you know, I've, I've said this before. I I'm a smart Alec. I write like writing smart Alex. Uh, Betty is a very different. She is not an urban sharpie. She's not Groucho Marx. You know, you can't write her like that. Uh, 
but she was sassy and she was smart and she was funny and she could turn a phrase when she wanted to. Um, and it does give me the opportunity to write in a voice I have never considered writing in before. And, uh, that was interesting. The, <laughs> there at the end of the first issue, uh, she's threatened by someone who says, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to you. And she says, like fun, you will, <laughs> which is not a thing that, you know, Doc Savage is not going to say that the shadow is not going to say like fun, you will, <laughs> but that is an expression that, uh, she would have used, I think. And later the, the day I, the day I handed that in, my editor referred to responded to something on Facebook that I wrote with like fun, you will. And I, <laughs> well, he must've liked that in the script, but it's, you know, it's a, it's an opportunity to, to wear, to, to wear a, a very, very, very different skin than I'm used to wearing. And, uh, that's a great opportunity. So your research, I, I found interesting, just kind of researching what you've done that you, um, you, when you research the history or the period, you have a particular book that you go to, uh, the timetable of history. Oh, the timetables of history. It yeah, sounds right I, up my alley. Uh, tell me about that. It's this big, crazy book. I had this great college professor called Peter Skiff, and Peter uh, said something the very first class. Yeah, you know, he was a. Uh, I went to Bard College, liberal arts school. I always had sort of a passing interest in science, but I'm terrible at math, like all cliche artists, which is not, you know, which shouldn't be the cliche, but it is. Uh, so I took a history of science class to get that requirement out of the way without any math. And uh, it was taught by a man named Peter Skiff. I think he just retired from teaching, which is amazing because in 1983, he did not seem to be a young man. So I'm kind of amazed that he stuck around that long. But Peter was a lanky NASA, NASA scientist, former missile guy who found it all too uh, morally reprehensible and went off to teach physics and science history to college students. But the very first thing he said was, and he had that NASA cliche 1950s sci-fi movie NASA scientist voice. You've been sold a bill of goods your entire life. The humanities and the sciences are not opposing poles. They are the same thing. And we're going to learn about how that is and how they intersect. So years before, years and years before uh, Steve Martin wrote Picasso at the La Palma Gilles, I heard Peter Skiff say, there's no Picasso without Einstein. There's no cubism without atomic theory. There's no, you know, and so he was great at relating everything together. And one of the ways in which he showed you how everything relates is he had found this book, was reprinted from the German in English. In Germany, it was called the Kulturfahrplan. Uh, and in, a, um, in English, it was called the Timetables of History. And it's basically all of human history, literally all of it broken down into essentially trivial pursuit categories and listed horizontally by year. So it'll say, you know, whatever, 1450, this happened in politics, this happened in daily life, this happened in art, this happened in science. So you can see things like, I'm trying to think of a good example, but you can see that like the year that this song was popular 
this scientific breakthrough had been made and this film was made and this political revolution was happening. And a lot of times there's no specific correlation between them, but it allows you to make those correlations. Uh, and when I did, you know, when I did, uh, I think the first time I did this was researching the Doc Savage because that was, again, a very open-ended thing. They said, pitch us Doc Savage. And I said, time, life, year, supervillain, any, you want to give me anything? And they're like, nope, just whatever you want to do. And my favorite period with Doc is the 30s. For obvious reasons, it's kind of the heyday of the character. Uh, so I opened the book and looked through from the date of the first issue to... Uh, World War Two. I didn't want to do Doc in World War Two. I feel like there's enough to do with World War Two. You don't necessarily need to make a Doc Savage thing about World War Two right off the bat. Certainly not my first thing with a character. And so I looked through the book about what are the things that happened in the 30s that Doc Savage might be interested in, just as a way of just as a way of you know sparking something that I wouldn't necessarily think sitting on my couch staring off into space with no input. And I, you know, found Amelia. I, it's not like I didn't know Amelia Earhart vanished in 1937. I know that very well. But the book reminded me, hey, this happened here in history. And I thought about the fact that Doc has this beautiful, headstrong, feminist <laughs> cousin named Pat Savage. I was like, don't you think Pat Savage and Amelia Earhart would have been buddies? Don't you think she would be upset about this and would want Doc Savage to go looking for Amelia? And that led to a bunch of other things. But it was the same with this. I I looked at, I mean, first, I chose 1951 because of uh, specifically Betty's career. She's being photographed. She's just starting to do magazine modeling. She's not famous yet. By 53, 54, she's doing the camera club stuff. I didn't want to do the camera club stuff, and I didn't want to do the BDSM stuff, uh, just because that, was, that wasn't an appealing thing to me to have as a sidebar in this particular story. Maybe if they give me another four issues, when this series wraps up, we'll go there. But I wanted to catch her at the moment before any of that had started to happen. That said, I will say, knowing her fan base and knowing what people like and know about Betty Page, every issue, she's either tied up or she's whipping somebody. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a fool. <laughs> you know, uh, in the first issue, we do give you, you know, I did, I, it's not an un uncommon circumstance for an adventure hero or heroine to be tied up by the bad guy. So I went, you know, let's, let's. Let's in, let's indulge the 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 fans of Betty Page who love her for her BDSM pictures, and yeah, we'll tie her up. <laughs> we'll let that happen. And then the second issue, as part of the movie she's acting in, she has someone else tied up and she's whipping them. So to me, it's it's not the most subtle thing in the world, but it's kind of a funny ongoing piece of foreshadowing, running joke that that kind of thing keeps happening to her out in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> sort of prepping her for her later fame as a as a bondage queen. Um, but anyway, that's the long answer to your question. Is that it's called the Timetables of History. It's a really it's one of those books you can just sit down and look at for hours and go, huh? <laughs> I didn't know. Oh yeah, 
oh, the zipper wasn't, oh, who knew there were no zippers before then? And that is useful because <laughs> that, you know, as much as I love the research, the Betty Page book, excuse me, I will say that at one point working on it, I was like, ah, someday I would like to research something. I would like to write something where a simple question like, what did a phone look like in 1950? You know, like where I can say, and then he picks up a phone and not have to go, okay, let me find a picture. It particularly struck me in this one because uh, Betty takes a, in issue one, Betty takes a cross country flight. And it just occurred to me, wow, I have no idea. 51 is before the jet age, really. What the hell is she flying from New York to Los Angeles in 1951? Turns out it's a Lockheed Super Constellation, just for the record, (laughs) if if you wanted to know. Um, And funny enough, right after I wrote that issue, I was in the uh, I was in uh, Washington for the uh, anti-inauguration march and uh, went to the Smithsonian Institution and they have some beautiful reference of Lockheed Constellation. So I took... uh, they have like an interior cockpit, and I was like, I don't need any of this, but it's kind of fascinating. You had mentioned that uh, when you went to Dynamite, or they came to you, you said, well, okay, what about the villains, and where is it set? And they're like, whatever you want. And that's the way they tend to work. They give the creators a lot of latitude. They do, indeed. If you had your druthers, what other comic characters or characters would you like to work on? I mean, you seem to be the pulp pinup guy, the go-to guy for that. Is there something that, that you would like to do? for them or anyone at some point. Well, I, you know, like all, uh, I am sure that everyone working for dynamite and even people not working for dynamite, when they heard that dynamite had James Bond license, we all went, Oh, oh." (laughs) (laughs) I did pitch. I pitched one James Bond thing. And I even said before I pitched it, like this is pitch black. And I think Eon productions would never go for it in a million years. But this is the one, it's the one James Bond story idea I had in my head for decades. Unsurprisingly, they didn't go for it, which is, uh, and it's based on something that literally came into my head the night Princess Diana died. It's basically, you do a, you do a story with a, a fictional Princess Diana who dies under very similar circumstances. And M goes to the prime minister and says, well, of course, MI6 will look into this and make sure it wasn't just a drunk driving thing. It wasn't some kind of assassination. And the PM says, uh, no, that's fine. It's handled. And that pisses off M, who goes to 007 and says, do a private black bag operation and find out what the hell, why the, why the prime minister doesn't want the Foreign Intelligence Service looking into this. And, of course, he discovers that an ultra right wing faction of the British government hired another MI6 agent to assassinate the princess because she was going to marry an Arab prince. So the future king of England would be raised by Dode Al-Fayed, which even at the time people said, yeah, the, you know, the British government is not incredibly pleased that that's who she has chosen to date. But that was one of those things on this is pitch black. And I know you won't, you won't want to do a James Bond story <laughs> in which James Bond discovers Princess Diana was killed by the British government. But that was my first idea. But uh, I'm, I'm, developing some pitches for that i have a pulp uh pitch that is uh a tricky one because it uses all of the characters from the period which i always thought would be a fun thing to do uh and chris roberson did something similar called mass oh yes uh, i love that book 
mine revolves around uh, King Kong. And it's literally something I developed with my dad when I was a kid because we were obsessed with the fact that Son of Kong, like King Kong was our favorite movie and Son of Kong is a terrible, terrible movie. (laughs) So we sat down and wrote a sequel to King Kong that ignores Son of Kong completely. And because he was a huge pulp fan, I put every pulp character in it. Uh, because he, and it all came from one idea, which is, I don't do you know G8? G8, G8 was a, G8 was a, a popular pulp character. They reprinted his novels at the same time as Doc Savage in the seventies, but it didn't take off. G8 was, a, G8 was like wild, wild west, but it was set during this, the world war one. And the basic premise was that G8 was a special agent for, uh, the allies in world war one that went on special missions. But what was hilarious about it is it's set during world war one and the Germans have the most outlandish, crazy science fictional super weapons. The first book, the Kaiser has giant mechanical bats that release poison gas over France. And the average, like the average G8 cover is him sitting on the bottom of his plane, which is flying upside down, fighting, firing a handgun at a dragon. <laughs> you know, that, that is an actual cover of a G8 pulp magazine. And you're like, oh, of course, dragons like the Germans had in World War One. <laughs> like, what the hell? I just love it. And it just has a complete straight face. No one ever, no one ever says, wow, this is pretty outlandish stuff that the Germans how does the Kaiser keep coming up with science fiction super weapons to send against us? But basically the first thing that popped in my head watching the end of King Kong and going, where do you go with this is, you know, who's in that plane killing King Kong? Who would you call? <laughs> you know, Like who are you going to call? You're going to call the guy that has killed dragons and giant flying bats with his biplane, with his world war one biplane. <laughs> so the first thing that dragged the pulp characters into this story was, uh, the idea that it's G8 and his flying aces that take down King Kong. But that's called Morning After Kong. That's something I've, I've pitched to Joe and he has on a, a back burner some, somewhere and maybe we'll put it together someday. But uh, the, the, the traditional superheroes, I'll say this, and it's the same thing with Betty Page. I was not sitting around going, oh, I'd love to write a Betty Page comic. What happens is... Someone pitches you a thing like that and you go, oh, that's actually when I when I put my mind to it, that's actually pretty fantastic. I do not sit around going, man, I wish someone would uh, let me write Deadpool. But I bet you anything, if someone called me tomorrow and said, come up with a Deadpool pitch, I would be excited about that immediately and come up with something. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. uh, I'll tell you a very, very short story about my dad that says everything about um he taught me everything about writing to a certain degree. And during a very fallow period in his career, he got a job writing a novelization of the screenplay of, you'll, you'll know this film because this is a masterpiece of the modern cinema, Friday the 13th, part three. Okay. And he was pretty depressed about the project and about the prospect of having to even read the script, forget, you know, rewriting it into English. And, uh, Script comes in the mail. I, he says, you look at this thing. And I read it. It was terrible. Uh, it read like it had been written by a very small child. And I handed it to him and I said, it's, it's terrible. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and he went down into his study 
close the door, silence for about a half hour. Then I hear the typewriter, typewriter, picks up speed. Two hours later, he came out with some pages in his hand and he said, I want you to read this. I'm doing something really great with Jason here. And I looked at him with disbelief and went, what, it's good now? Like, you're, you're, you're going to tell me that this is actually going to be good? You're, going, you're claiming you're going to make something good out of this? And he said, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, this is the job, man. This is, you know, you, and the valuable lesson, I mean, I think it's obvious, but the valuable lesson that he taught me there is you approach everything with professionalism and enthusiasm. Nothing has to be bad. I've said this in comic books, in writing, in film, in everything. The, for the, my, my one, the one low-budget movie with my name on it as a writer and director is called Kick of Death. And it's, that was a thing where I was handed a terrible script and allowed to rewrite it completely. And it was about a kickboxer and a stripper. And again, just like that, my initial feeling was, ugh, a kickboxer and a stripper. And then... The professional part of me took over, and I thought, no, a kickboxer and a stripper are human beings. And if you tell me you are incapable of writing a story about any human being in any job, you're not a writer. If you think the story of a kickboxer is not worth telling just just because a thousand people have made terrible movies about kickboxers does not mean a kickboxer is not a human being whose story is uninteresting. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Absolutely. The, if 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 you think ugh, kickbox, it's like that's a dude. It's a, you know, it's a man. <laughs> they have inner lives. What's that inner life? Find out what it is and write something about it. If they haven't made a good film about it, that's your opportunity to make one. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know, it's funny. Last night, Turner Classic Movies was doing a thing about horrible um, monster movies. And I can't remember which one I walked in on. I was out here. I was in my office working and went into the bedroom and she was watching this. It conquered the world. I think she said, I think it's about giant snails trying to take over the world. It's not scary. <laughs> okay. It challenged the world. I, oh, it challenged the world. Okay. Uh, and uh, it did. It's it, The thing is essentially like some sort of caterpillar centipede snail. It's not scary at all. But you look at it and you go... This movie exists because of them, because someone Mm. made a really good one. (laughs) Someone, you know, and them is a perfect example. Someone went to a producer and a director and went, or and a writer and went, giant ants. (laughs) And instead of rolling their eyes, they wrote a, okay, how do you make a good movie about giant ants? And frankly, they made an excellent giant ant movie to the degree that, Aliens, Cameron's Aliens, if you watch them side by side, is a remake of them. Mm, it has a lot of the same visual language. The, the, the opening scene in them, see if this sounds familiar to you, is a couple of cops find a destroyed uh, RV and some dead bodies that have been ripped to shreds and a little girl in a catatonic state who can't speak clearly about the horrible monsters that did this to her family. It starts out as a mystery. It starts uh-huh. out as a murder mystery. And the whole thing with Newt being the lone survivor of the colony, and a lot of the imagery in them is helmeted U.S. soldiers in underground caves fighting giant 
insects that jump out of the shadows at them. Does that sound a little familiar? Yeah, hey, I never <laughs> as a visual language. And Carpenter, you know, he's sort of a the slightly more um he's a remixer like Tarantino. He's not a so much an innovator, but he he'll take imagery from a place and remix it into a slightly different format and sometimes come up with a very acceptable movie from it. But the point being that de facto you tell me you have to make a movie about giant ants you know you can sit there and go oh that's idiotic and you can see when you see a movie like the giant caterpillar one my wife watched last night that's a guy that went oh this is fucking stupid (laughs) (laughs) i don't i don't have to this doesn't have to be good i don't need good actors for this i don't need a good cinematographer this is just gonna be stupid uh, what can I afford? <laughs> Who's the cheapest giant caterpillar guy in Reseda that I can hire to make this costume? Um, and clearly the people who made them went, no, I'll, I this this could be good. <laughs> this could be scary. This could be compelling. So anyway, that's my the lesson my dad taught me about being a, a so-called hack. But I think it applies to everything is someone comes with you with an opportunity comes to you with an opportunity to tell a story there's always a good story that can be told there's always a quality there's no premise that is in and of itself uh this has to be bad this has to be stupid so that's how i that's how i approach all of my work no that's absolutely brilliant and we've even seen that in the superhero movies how when they initially made any kind of superhero show it was usually pretty silly i mean it wasn't taken seriously unless it was supposed to be a spoof it was just cringeworthy and then creators got a hold of it, directors, writers that really cared about the characters. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to really make something of this. And they did. So the whole perception of them changed because they just got better because they took it seriously as a job. Yep. My, the, another lesson my father taught me, by the way, and I told this story the other day too, that the, taught me a, a, a technique 101 thing. Do you remember the first line of dialogue in Superman, the movie? Mm, I don't. It's been a while since I've seen it. My father pointed out to me that sometimes you can say the subtext out loud. Sometimes you as an artist can speak out loud to the audience and say something that should be subtext. But if you frame it just the right way, the audience doesn't pick up that you're saying the subtext. And the Superman movie is the first one, the good one, is defined by the seriousness with which it takes its subject, which we're just talking about. Okay, so the opening scene is Marlon Brando is uh, prosecuting General Zod, right? And he's talking about the charges that he has listed against General Zod. And literally, the first words out of anyone's mouth in that movie is Marlon Brando saying, this is no fantasy. And sitting in the audience, you don't go, (laughs) oh, that's uh, Tom Mankiewicz telling me that we're taking this material seriously now. Mm Mm-hmm. Like you, you're into the moment as a viewer, and you, it's it's Jor-El talking about his charges against General Zod. But no, it's not. It's Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz and Mario Puzo going, take this seriously. This is no fantasy. <laughs> this is, we're, we're setting this in the real world. Metropolis is going to look a lot like Manhattan in 1978. <laughs> you know, it's going to have Twin Towers. Uh, Kansas is going to look like Kansas, even though it's really Calgary, Alberta. Um, but, uh, I think that's a really interesting approach and it's, and you're right. It's, uh, 
it's it's what defines the work. I mean, look at the the Batman movies go from Tim Burton taking it seriously, then him applying it even more personally to himself, I would say, in the second movie. And then it's by by George Clooney, it might as well be Adam West playing the part. And even that was intentional spoof. Yeah. It's uh no, and it also I mean, not to get off on a slightly different tangent, but also it I think it's important to understand what is the story you're telling and why are you telling it and what does what is it about? What does it mean? I'm not the only person to say that I you know, that Zack Snyder's failure to make a good Superman movie is so much because he doesn't get the character because he does not live in the moral universe of that character. It does not appeal to him. And I would say he failed. Um, and even though he reproduced the visuals of the comic book perfectly, um, Watchmen is a book about the failure of force and violence to solve anything. And you can't make that movie if you think superhero fights are cool and cool looking. One of the most telling things to me about why that movie fails as, a, as an act of direction, my sister, who was not familiar with the book, when the movie was over, said to me, I don't understand. We saw how Dr. Manhattan got his powers. How did the rest of the characters get their superpowers? And I said, well, they're not superpowered. They're just well-trained athletes and whatever. And she said, but Ozymandias punched his fist through a brick wall in the first scene. That's not the most well-trained human being in the world. <laughs> not punch their way through. I mean, and that wasn't some karate studio single wall of bricks. That was a corner of a fireplace, if I remember correctly. No one could actually do that. And she's like, and they seem to be able to fly when they wanted to, you know, because of all the wire work in the movie. And I said, you know, you're right. It looked like that. But no, it's actually supposed to be a bunch of sad middle-aged people who are just in relatively good shape. You know? <laughs> and the and again, it's the it's the failure of understand. You know, you take on a giant project that you love and you love what, you know, and you supposedly understand you know, Peter Jackson says his favorite movie is King Kong, which is 100 minutes long, and his homage to King Kong is four hours long. It's like, dude, you didn't learn the first thing from King Kong, which is that action movies should be 100 minutes long. That's, that's the, that is the lesson to be learned from King Kong, is action movies are best at 100 minutes. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is like 105 minutes or something like that. But anyway, that's my... That's my rant about that. I think it it's good to grasp what you're – you always ask yourself if you care about this stuff. When you start a project, you go, what is this about? What's the – what am I – what story am I telling? What's the – you know, not to be – not that they, we all have to be Aesop's fables, but what's what's the moral of the story? Why why are you telling this story? My other favorite example of that, and then I'll stop with the the – the artistic no, uh, no this is great no please continue uh this is an old rant of mine but the gus van zandt remade psycho frame by frame but he did put in some quote-unquote modern flourishes one of his modern flourishes is that when uh norman bates is watching marion crane in the shower he's masturbating 
And when I saw that scene, I was like, you have no idea why this story exists or why we're telling this story. If Norman Bates could masturbate, look at the name of the character, by the way. If he could <laughs> masturbate, he would not have to put on ladies' clothing and murder her. Mm-hmm. Right. right. <laughs> he would towel himself off, take a shower, and go to sleep. Good but point. he can't. He has no release except murder. It's not shame from having achieved an orgasm it's that his mother is this thing in his brain that blocks him from sexual pleasure and from real relationships with other human beings so he destroys anything that he feels attracted to so to me that's just such a telling when i saw that i'm like what what is this story about if it's not about how sexual repression leads to murder what the hell is the why does this work of art exist you know what i mean yeah, yeah, that's literally the story has no there's no reason to tell that story unless you think serial killers are cool. You know what I mean? There's no what's the impetus? What's the what's it about? Well, that's what it's about. And here the director writer of it is telling you, yeah, I have no idea what this story is about. <laughs> I, I know don't know why Norman Bates murders people. And the thing sort of like with the Peter Jackson King Kong thing, you just go, I don't get what like to love something as much as you love this and fundamentally not understand it is fascinating. You yeah, know, you raised some excellent points there. Thank you. Thank you. That's that, that's that's my rant. No, <laughs> about- that's, that's that is why we are here. That, that's what we want to talk about. The creative process, your insights about it. I like to talk about the book. I'd love to talk about the book, but. I also like to talk with the guests about other things in their mind, including the creative process, and that's why it's sure. called what it is. Great. I have some just some fun questions, just to digress on a bit, that I ask sure. all my guests. And at some point, we have to change these up because everyone's going to know what the questions are in advance. Some are very sure. easy. Like, for example, what do you like to do for peace and relaxation when you're just kicking back and you're not writing? I mean, the 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 too many of those answers are uh, what I call bad uh, personal ad responses but uh you know movies really take me uh and good television of which there is plenty but for me going to the movies and sitting in a movie theater is uh is church it's a trans it's a a transcendent experience and i try to have at least once a week if i can um and that relaxes me enormously um i used (laughs) i was gonna say i used to read for relaxation uh, but since I became a professional comic book writer, so much of what I'm reading um, is research. So that's a lot of fun, but it's it has the tinge of work if I'm reading, you know, four Doc Savage novels in a row just to, you know, bulk myself up on Doc Savage. And I love the ocean. I um, That's the real piece for me, you know, just to go sit on a beach somewhere and, you know, <laughs> the, it's funny. I've done that since I was a teenager. And when I was a teenager, it didn't have the added bonus of shitty cell reception. So no one can get to you. <laughs> you can't read your email, but that certainly is good. And I love, I love driving actually. That's my, um, I wouldn't say I'm a very all American boy, but I, I love, I'm a, uh, Mets fan. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine even said, David's not a baseball fan. He's a Mets fan. It's not the same. <laughs> uh, and I, I actually got like, yeah, it's kind of true. 
Um, but yeah, e- e- even given their, <laughs> even given their, their, the, the, the built-in tension of it being the Mets and they could lose spectacularly at any time, um, that relaxes me. And the other, the most all-American boy thing about me is I love to drive. I find that road trips very, very relaxing and mind clearing. And do you have an island book? Now, I mean, if it were me, I probably would take that timetable of history. But <laughs> it, that would keep me busy for a long time. But is there something that you'd want to have with you if you had nothing else to access information with? A particular um, book? Oh, I don't know. If, you know, if it's a desert island thing, I don't know that it's going to be necessary for me to access information because I don't know what I'm going to do with knowing what, <laughs> See what you're knowing missing. what year the zipper was invented is not going to be terribly useful to me on my desert island. And I'll skip the usual jokes on I would like a book on how to build a boat out of palm trees, uh, <laughs> how to make an airplane out of coconuts. Uh, so I guess that would be the uh, that would be the Gilligan's Island That's box. The, that, the complete Gilligan's yeah, Island, yes. Yeah, complete works of the professor. <laughs> would, uh, um, but I would say that uh, things I read for pleasure over and over again, this is really going to out me to a degree, uh, though not in the technical sense. Um, Naked Lunch, William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, is such a kaleidoscope that's different on every page, and portions of it are nightmarish, but large sections of it, and I think this gets missed a lot, are hilarious. It's one of the funniest books ever written and one of the most nightmarish books ever written. I don't know that I would get – it's a hard book to get tired of because you can dip into – you can you can pick it up and open it on every any page and you're in a different place with different characters than you would be opening it on any other page. Um, and the other – to cheat and say two books, believe it or not, I reread You Only Live Twice – the Ian Fleming book a lot, like at least once a year. And uh, the thing about it that if you're only familiar with Bond from the movies, it is a, it is nothing like any of the movies. It's the second to last book that Fleming wrote. It's the last one that was published while he was alive, I think. And uh, in the previous book, Bond's wife is murdered. And the first half of the book, maybe even more than half, is about grief, is about a guy suffering incredible, crippling, paralyzing grief, taking an enforced mission slash vacation in Japan and hanging out with a cool dude who's a lot like him named Tiger Tanaka. And mostly they just hang out. <laughs> and, and and it's 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 just a really, it's for some reason, I've had a lot of, and not to get too personal, but I've had a lot of people die on me over the years, and it, you know, grief is a subject at the forefront of my mind more often than it should be. And uh, I find that book incredibly comforting. And then the second half of the book is a little bit more of a James Bond adventure, but it's literally the only time in the entire series that it went. This time, it's personal, and uh, and it's got a twist that I think. If someone gave me the money to make a James Bond movie, I would make that because uh, the uh, – have you ever read it? No, I haven't. The the shocker is you know, M sends him to Japan on a diplomatic mission because he's worthless as a secret agent because of the death of Tracy. And uh, Blofeld, of course, is who killed Tracy. 
and he's supposed to make a deal with the Japanese for a decoding device by hanging by, you know, by diplomacy, by hanging out with Tiger Tanaka and making the two services friendly and all that. And at the end of the romance period, Tiger Tanaka says, "Okay, we'll give you the decoding device, but you got to do something for us. This foreigner has moved to Japan and he's a nightmare and we hate him and we want him to die and you're going to kill him for us. And he hands Bond a picture and it's Blofeld. So it's also, it's the only Bond novel that's about fate. You know, it's the only one that has this weirdly epic novel. The rest of them are great spy adventures, but that one is an epic about man's fate. <laughs> and they're, that's not really a thing that's in any of the movies. And he goes, and Blofeld has, um, because of the Japanese preoccupation with suicide, the reason they want him dead is he's basically created a, park full of deadly things that Japanese are coming to in droves and killing themselves. Uh, poisonous plants, animals, he calls it his garden of death. And Bond basically shows up at the castle and strangles him. <laughs> and, it's, and it's really, and then at the end he loses his, in an explosion, he loses his memory and ends up living with the, uh, his undercover, uh, He's he's deep undercover with a Japanese uh, pearl diving girl, and when she discovers that he's lost his memory, she decides to just keep him. And the book ends with an indication that he might get his memory back and go back to Russia to find out who the hell he is, um, and that's all picked up in the next book. But it's just this weird, slow-as-hell, contemplative, emotional book that is completely at odds with the rest of the series. But I think there's this thing that happens. Even when you're this boilerplate writer of great thrillers, when you've done all that and you're an old man and you're, you know, cresting the hill of life, you go, you know what? I don't want to write about uh, world-destroying devices and plots. And I I want to write about old age and sadness. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a James... I'm going to write a James Bond novel about old age and sadness <laughs> and loss. <laughs> and uh, that's, a, you know, again, all of that to say, that's why it's one of my, it's a, it's a very unusual, in the history of pulp fiction and pop culture, it's kind of rare that you get one of those. You know, that someone takes a big, famous character. And at the time he wrote it, you know, that was when the Bond blockbusters, you know, I think Goldfinger was being made when he was writing you only twice and that he literally like, Oh, you're making big blockbuster move entertainments out of this. Yeah. I'm going to write something that's absolutely not that I'm going to write James Bond in therapy for 150 pages. <laughs> Turn that into a movie, smart guy, which is why when they made the movie, they literally went, okay, it's called you only live twice. And it takes place in Japan. That's pretty much it. <laughs> We're going to dump the rest of this stuff. Anyway, very long answer to a very short question. Excellent answer. And my final question is your beverage of choice. It doesn't have to be uh, spirits, but what is your beverage of choice? My beverage of choice, it's, it's, it's a seesaw between coffee and vodka martinis. Not to, okay. not to, not to betray the, the Bond influence too much. And certainly <laughs> in my 30s, when I wasn't married and lived alone and had no particular, uh, no one particularly owned my time during that period. It really was like, there's no way to look at it that it wasn't a drug regimen. You know, I can, 
I can mock people who can't get anything done without cocaine and can't relax without pot, but <laughs> I was definitely waking up in the morning, sticking a needle with an upper in my arm and going to bed at night by sticking a needle with downers in my uh-huh, arm. Uh-huh. So, you know, the, the push and pull, but I no longer need a martini to get to sleep. Uh, I don't know that I'm quite done with coffee to get up in the morning though. Yeah. I still need it. Definitely. Yeah. It's uh, there's a great, if you, uh, there's a very entertaining essay by Malcolm Gladwell, who the older I get, the more I think is full of shit, but he wrote a great <laughs> essay called uh, Java man if you want to hunt down, where he basically says that the Industrial Revolution is the outgrowth entirely of coffee arriving in Europe from the New World. Because basically, for the first time, you had a workforce that could stay awake all day. (laughs) And they could stand at a machine and pull a lever, operate a drill press, you know, whatever, instead of nodding off in a barn somewhere after their morning chores were done, which was... Because... It's about clean water. Water wasn't clean, so people drank it. Most The beverage most people consumed in Europe up to that point was a sort of wine, beer, soft drink that wasn't that soft that people would drink in the afternoon with lunch. And, you know, you'd be waking up at 4 or 5 a.m. to do your farm, your agricultural job. Uh, and then by noon, you're sleeping it off. By, one, you're, you're, by noon, you're drinking, and by one and two, you're sleeping it off. And coffee arrives from the new world, and suddenly it's, hey, I, I got five more hours in me. <laughs> what, what, what do you got for me to do? You know, Hand me a piece of metal to stamp or a, you know, a, an assembly line to man. So it's a, a job of man. Look it up. It's very, very funny. I will. And David, thank you so much. Uh, Betty Page coming out in July. Yes, I think it's July nineteenth. If you want to, you know, talk after that. Okay. Uh, I will also. I can't say what it is right now, but by mid June, I will be announcing. Uh, hopefully, I think it's pretty solid. A bigger, even bigger, even more high profile gig. Oh, okay. In oh. comics, um, with a pretty extraordinary. Um, co-creator partner working with me so ask me you can ask me about that in mid-july if you want will do that's it's on my calendar now okay great david thank you so much for being on the show i really appreciate it oh my pleasure and that wraps up my interview with David Avalone. That was a great interview. I really enjoyed digressing like that, going into uh, James Bond, even Alien and Superman. Great stuff. Really enjoyed that. That's what the show is all about. Not just the book, which I'm really looking forward to this Betty Page comp book coming out in July, but also uh, all the other things we talked about too, especially from a creator's point of view, especially someone who works on film, directing film, editing film, acting in film. Really, their opinion means a lot to me because they've been there, they've done that, and they can look at it with a far more critical eye, having walked the path, and can really give us some great insight and unique observations. And rest assured, we just scratched the surface. I will be inviting David back to talk more and learn about his next project that's coming up. He'll be announcing in mid-June, if all goes according to plan. Well, let me know if you like what you heard. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter and also give me some feedback. At Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. You can also shoot me an email through the website, creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com. There you can find past episodes, listen to those. The episodes are available on my website through SoundCloud, iTunes, 
Google Play, and Stitcher. And if you have time, please rate and write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And most important of all, spread the word of Creator Talks. Let people know that you're listening to the show and that you like what you hear. And share those Facebook posts and tweets. That way, the word spreads of Creator Talks. And we get a chance to invite more guests on the show. Well, that's it for now. I look forward to you joining me again next week when I have more great creators on the show. I know you have a lot of comic book podcasts to choose from, and I thank you for choosing this one. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.